Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about Oxio Health, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama. Hi, welcome to Healthcare 2030. I'd like to introduce my uh, partner, Carl Larson. Hello, Noel. The subject uh, of today's podcast is Medicare for All. In the United States, we're in the middle, I'm not sure if it's early, but certainly in the middle of a presidential election. And one of the hottest topics um, that voters uh, are expressing concern about is healthcare. And I have to tell you, I've been in healthcare for 31 years, and it's always been number one or number two topic. Um, and today, it, it continues to be that. And the conversation is about Medicare for All, in part because two of the leading um, contenders in the Democratic Party, uh, and a number of Democrats, have advocated um, that basically the government should take over uh, health care in the United States, which has also been proposed many times before. When I got into health care, it was Bill Clinton, uh, and the Clinton sort of plan that was discussed about effectively taking over Medicare. Sometimes it's called the single payer, Medicare for all. Uh, there are very variables of it, uh, including sort of a public option, which would allow individuals to buy into either Medicare or Medicaid or both. I, I think that actually is a pretty good idea. And I did a series of podcasts um, at the last election in 2016 where I think I brought up 12 or 14 points to changing healthcare, and a public option is definitely part of it. But this this particular subject is about Medicare for all and, and the challenges with that. And this has nothing to do with politics. It is really about economics and access. Um, the, the plan that has been proposed has a very large price tag. Um, the, the ranges are as little as $30 trillion to a high of $52 trillion. And forget about taxes, forget about uh, how it's gonna get paid. You've got a couple of sort of arithmetic problems and economists are starting to bring it up um, because it's sort of a false false option. And let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, If if the 160 million people that receive healthcare through their employers today um, are now in a, a single payer or a Medicare for all, um, I believe, based on my experience, that it would be catastrophic for healthcare, and 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 it has nothing to do, again, with the politics of it. It has to do with literally economics. Medicare uh, it pays for hospitals and doctors. What I would argue is sort of breaking even rates for those doctors, and I can tell you because I've been involved in hospitals and doctors. So if you now set that standard as the base standard. Uh, you're going to see dramatic cut in hospital and doctor reimbursement. So some of the proposals being made are to increase Medicare rates uh, by 10%. So it would be basically the Medicare for all will effectively be 110% of current Medicare rates. The problem with that is, in most cases, the hospitals will lose money. And I would predict that 25 or 30% of the hospital in the United States would literally go out of business. Um, and the reason for that is those 158, 160 million people that receive 
um, their health benefits through their employers, those private insurance companies, and by the way, they could be private, private for-profit, private not-for-profit, but they're still private. Insurance companies pay an average of 215% of what Medicare pays. And, and by the way, separate from Medicare, um, there's a program called Medicaid, which is basically has about 30 million people. And those are our people, mostly children, but also people that fall below the, the poverty rate um, that are basically given uh, health care by the state government with a subsidy from the federal government. So, for example, in the state of Florida, where we're based, the single largest budget item is Medicaid. The second is then education. Um, and the government, the federal government, pays the state about half of its cost. Uh, Medicaid, in every case I've ever seen, pays well below cost. Um, my best case recollection was that it was about a 30% loss. So, effectively, if you take Medicare at, at breaking even, uh, Medicaid paid let 30% less, or, or about 70% of the cost of providing care. So what happens is, if everybody goes towards Medicare for all on economics at 110% of Medicare, that gap that 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 subsidies the transfer payment, the 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 revenue or the profit windfall from commercial insurance would now disappear. So now there's either one rate, which is Medicare for all, or two rates, in theory, which would be Medicare for all and Medicaid. doesn't make any sense, but let's assume that. Um, I think you're going to have a tremendous shortage of doctors because they're going to give up. Uh, you're going to expand care, sure. There's no question about it that you've got you know somewhere between 25 and 30 million people that are uninsured. You actually probably have 25 or 30 million people that are underinsured. Um, but you're going to create a tremendous contraction of the industry itself. And here's what happens for people like uh, like uh, my mother, for example, that's on Medicare, is with the inflow of all those people coming into Medicare, you're going to have uh, those in Medicare today for sure wait longer because you're going to have a contraction of providers and you're going to have an, ex an expansion of users. So when people are assuming that Medicare beneficiaries will not be affected, I would argue strongly that they will be affected not because of cost, but because of access. So that's a long intro, Carl. What do you yeah. think? Well, I think that <clears throat> definitely is a great overview of, of the situation. And... Um, I guess I want to I want to ask the question that maybe is obvious, but it the term is Medicare for all. Uh, what does that really mean? Because all is not all. It's it would seem. Well, Medicare, the basic Medicare, and there's two components of Medicare, and maybe in the next podcast we'll talk about it. Sort of, there is uh, once you get over sixty five. Uh, and you've been a resident and paid into Medicare, you receive Medicare benefits automatically. Um, and basically, medic, basic Medicare for services are that almost every hospital in the country and most doctors will accept Medicare, and Medicare effectively pays 80% of, let's call it the Medicare rate, that rate that I talked about at the introduction. The consumer's responsible, or the patient, for 20%. So if the Medicare rate uh, if the doctor bills, which is very routine in the United States, 
let's say $400 for, for an extensive office visit, Medicare is likely to pay, a, sort of uh, accept $100 as his payment, and Medicare will pay $80, the consumer pays $20. That's the way Medicare is. It's, it's basically an indemnity plan. There is very little management of it. It's, it's a la carte, whatever you want, whatever sort of you need. There are, there are two other sort of parts of Medicare that people do it to try to manage it because that 20%, if you're retired, can be material. A hospital stay could, have, could cost thousands of dollars, that, which is in that copay category. So what's been created are basically Medicare gap insurance, which is where you pay an insurance company um, a monthly rate that basically reduces that 20% to something less. It could be no no deductible for primary care, and they basically pay the difference to the insur- to the to the provider, um, or there may be a maximum so that the person can only be out of pocket four or five thousand dollars or a number that they pick. There are multiple plans; they all have to be approved by the federal government, uh, and they're they're sort of numbered by the alphabet A, B, C, and they they take some out and come in. So that's sort of a, what what's generally referred to in the industry as gap insurance. The third component is managed care, and managed care is the one that I've had tremendous amount of experience in, and that is where a company, an insurance company, they're Aetna, Cigna, United Healthcare, uh, Anthem, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, basically makes a deal with the federal government, and the federal government pays them effectively a, a monthly premium, which is referred to as a capitation, that is based on a lot of variables, but I'll give you the basic ones. Those variables are the age, the sex of the individual, their location, every zip code is different, and a bunch of variables based on the complexity of their healthcare condition. So someone who is incredibly healthy at 65 would be a much smaller number than someone who is 75 and has you know half a dozen conditions. So it has that the difference between managed care and why I've always been an advocate of managed care, medic, what's called Medicare Advantage, is because the insurance company has a vested interest in managing and helping you stay healthy or be healthy. So they give you a lot of benefits. They generally, at least in Florida, they will give you dental coverage. They will give you optical coverage better than Medicare. They will give you membership at, 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 at a uh, gym. Uh, they will give you other benefits and services, which might include the acupuncture, ther- other types of therapy. So that's why they try to sort of induce you as, an, as a consumer to join into the plan. Um, so that's sort of the big components of, 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 of Medicare. When people talk about Medicare for all, the assumption is they're talking about sort of that, that indemnity part where it's 80% covered and 20% paid by, 20% paid by consumer. So it won't be free. Um, at least nobody's proposed it to be free that I've heard of. It would just be access for everyone. The challenge that you have is that the Medicare for All does not offer um, the benefits generally that most of those 150 million, 160 million people that have private insurance, because that includes companies like IBM, General Motors, and you know, um, Microsoft, and all these companies that provide tremendous benefits to their employees um, as part of their employment uh, relationship uh, that provides them a lot of flexibility. Medicare doesn't do that and will never do that. 
Um, so that's where. So in, in fact, I would argue that Medicare for all would be a net loss for every union member in this country because almost by by definition, all union health benefits are among the best in this country. As a matter of fact, for a while, under the Affordable Care Act and what's called Obamacare, they had something called the Cadillac tax, which is basically if a, an employee received benefit, uh, which is premiums and benefits that exceeded at the time $10,000, then the insurance company had to pay a Cadillac tax, which obviously increased a premium that the employer was playing. So it was kind of, and, and, and one of the things that, that the unions had a big problem and they got waivers after waivers after waiver until it was eliminated recently, last year I think it was, is because they had really good benefits. If you're a police officer or a fire, fire uh, one of the reasons you do that besides the community service and all the other things is because they have great health insurance. They have great disability insurance. So in a Medicare for all, all those type of sort of um, you know, AAA employers, governments, will all be impacted, uh, in particular unions, even for private companies. So let's pick an example of Boeing. Boeing provides tremendous health benefits to their employees. In theory, if you had Medicare for all, Boeing would no longer pay those benefits to employees, and those employees would be part of Medicare for all, which I guarantee you would be less uh, uh, coverage less benefits than bo- the average Boeing employee would have today. Without question, I don't, t- I don't have to look at their benefits. So you mentioned uh, a number of statistics. Um, we've got uh, the employer plans that you mentioned, um, some really, really good plans, uh, the plans of uh, the the union workers. Uh, we also have self-pay plans where individuals um, purchase their own insurance, pay for it on their own. So Medicare for all would essentially, potentially at least, do away with those. And um, the individual would then be contracting with the federal government for, uh, as, as the federal government being a provider. Is, is, that, one of the, is that one of the directions that... Well, they're, well they're sure. Go- I mean, you know, we have still the Affordable Care Act, uh, there's plus or minus 30 million people in, in the plan today. They have multiple types of plans. They're generally you know, precious metals. They're either gold, silver, or bronze. So without question, the bronze plan uh, is not as good as Medicare, without question. There's no none that I have seen would be equivalent to Medicare. Um, the silver plan is probably comparable to Medicare. If you did, the, the only thing that's dramatically different is the provider network. The provider network for Medicare today is nearly every doctor, nearly every hospital. Um, and even though one of the things that I've when I've talked to people about this is, well, if it if it costs if it doesn't if it's not profitable to provide Medicare uh, benefits, why do hospitals do it? Well, for two reasons. One is it's part of their revenue model. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the biggest things that a hospital could do to get in trouble is basically be barred uh, or suspended from taking Medicare benefits because it's part of their model. It's like almost anything else. Uh, Let's talk about cars. Uh, When when, when dealers sell cars, their profit margin is not the same on every single car. Sometimes they might even sell a car, you know, breaking even or a loss because they want to move the inventory. 
uh, and they're paying interest on the other side. So uh, hospitals all want to be part of Medicare. I'm not sure they all want to be part of Medicaid, but that's okay. That's still revenue coming in the door. Um, and it, 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 because of federal laws, the, the, uh, the law requires that, that hospitals treat and stabilize anybody that comes through the door. And that's why they have a lot of what's called unreimbursed care, or sometimes you'll see charity care. And that includes profit and nonprofit. So it's not just nonprofit organizations or hospitals that do that. Even for-profit hospitals have to do that. So perhaps we can recap the statistics a little bit. Um, what What is the number, roughly, of citizens on Medicare and Medicaid compl- compared to those that are not, that are on employer plans or self-pay plans or may not even have insurance um, that are in a population of roughly 330 million people? So we have 150 to 160 million people uh, that receive their health benefits through their employers. In most cases, their health care benefit is going to be much better than Medicare Um, because that's part of what employers or employees look like when they go, when they look at, when they want to go to work for someone. What's the health benefit? And that's very, very important. So in most cases, it's going to be better than Medicare. It may not be as wide of a network, but it's still better than Medicare. Um, You have 27 million people, plus or minus, that are that are providing their own health care coverage. That is through the Affordable Care Act for almost almost all of it. But there are others that are not part of Affordable Care Act. For example, there there's there's a there are companies that do um, faith faith based mm-hmm. shared services, you know, or shared cost. Sort of a co op. Yeah. So they're sort of a, so they would be covered in that category also, where they're paying for themselves. You have about forty four million people in Medicaid. Uh, in the United States, you have about 55 million people that are on Medicare, generally over 65. There are cases, people that are on disability, uh, government disability, are on Medicare also. Um, And in some rare cases, uh, children can be on Medicare if their parent was either disability or, uh, or, or over 65 and they still had benefits. Or uh, they have other conditions that that qualify them to Medicare, but so that that's a minor. Most of it is over people over the age of sixty-five, and then we've got plus or minus twenty-five to thirty million that are technically uninsured. Mm-hmm. Um, many of those, by the way, not a majority, but many of those will probably qualify for Medicaid, but sometimes they they they, they don't want to apply. Some of those could be, uh, for sure, people that are maybe undocumented in this country. And they don't they don't believe. Uh, or they believe that if they apply for Medicaid, they'd have a problem, they'd be deported. That's not always the case, but that that fear, there's a number there. You also have um, students that may have uh, not access to their parents' uh, health insurance, which today I think covers well into the mid-20s. Or they could be people that are coming, you know, through transition of unemployment or employment. So if, if you quit a job or are fired for a job and you don't find a job for two two months, for one month you probably are going to be counted in that uninsured. So I don't know the numbers. They're published. but So there's a lot of transition in that uninsured. 
Um, almost, I think there was a study that said that almost everyone over a 10-year period is uninsured at some point. Um, a majority, certainly, uh, of Americans are doing it. So that's sort of the big buckets. Um, without question, we need to transform healthcare. Without question, we need to change healthcare. I am without any without any reservation whatsoever. Forget about how we're going to pay for it, which is, by the way, it's a really big problem, a catastrophic problem. From the provider side, from the access side, uh, from the system side, it's a really big deal. Recently, we have begun a, a series of podcasts that that I labeled the United States of Healthcare. And the argument that I make in, in, the, in the blogs, not the podcast, is that the, the United States has effectively transitioned um, by circumstances from a industrial production, from manufacturing, to really a healthcare company or to a healthcare economy. And, and, and my points that I can make is one, healthcare is the single largest employer of the United States. Um, healthcare is the single largest component of you, of healthcare based on of GDP in the United States. If you aggregated a bunch of other things, it might be higher. For example, if you aggregated banking, insurance, and real estate, it would be higher. But I'm not sure that those, at least in my world, don't fit together. But even that number is about to be collectively is about to be passed by healthcare. Um, um, Healthcare is either number one or number two in almost every commentary about what the, cons- the the voters want from government or what they want a solution, what they see their biggest problem, their biggest stress. There are a lot of Americans that are employed today uh, primarily because of the healthcare. Otherwise, they might be moving. So that that's a, that is a component. So healthcare uh, is very is not only big and it continues to grow. The last year, healthcare grew by about four and a half percent. And it's been growing at an average of four and a half percent since be almost you know the 1960s. When I got into healthcare, healthcare was under 10 percent of GDP. Today, it's cracking 18 percent of GDP. And if you go back to 1965, when the Medicare program was started, by the way, that's another issue that 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 may have impacted the cost of care. Medicare was less than six percent. So in a little bit over 50 years, healthcare went from about 6% of healthcare, of the, of the GDP of the United States, to almost 18% of GDP of the United States. So I think that the good and the bad of that, one, the bad is that it's healthcare. Um, the good is that healthcare cannot be outsourced. It's just not gonna go to China or any other country. It's gonna be provided here. Um, the second thing is, um, that it, it, it provides good salaries. Um, and I think that the argument would, from my side is that we still have the best healthcare in the world uh, collectively, even with the, the ch- issues we have on coverage. We, it's, it's very common to see very famous people and very wealthy people from all over the world, even, even you know, sometimes kings and prime ministers come to the United States to be treated, uh, in particularly our, our, our big quality centers, which would be like MD Anderson in Texas or the Mayo Clinic in um, Minnesota, uh, Cleveland Clinic, obviously, in in Cleveland and other subsidiaries, or Boston, uh, Brigham and Women is a great, or NYU, you're talking about, or UCLA, you're talking about incredible research facilities. But I would still argue that even in those smaller, much smaller communities, certainly in we're just outside of Miami, has some amazing 
um, uh, hospitals. And even in our own community up in West Palm Beach, there's amazing hospitals. So um, there's a lot of resiliency in healthcare. And I think that's in, in a good way. The last point that I'll make is that also makes the United States much more stable um, because of that health care creates stability for those people that are employed by by the, by the industry. And, and I think the last number I looked at was, you know, plus or minus 20 million people are employed in health care. And I think the number is probably underestimated because I think that there are other buckets that, that are not connected. Let me give you an example. There's a You've got people that could be in IT that are probably going to be counted in IT even though they're in healthcare. Um, the real estate in healthcare is probably in the real estate bucket and not in the healthcare bucket. So, it, again, that's sort of the positive. But the summary of the issue is that, that without question, from the provider side, from the hospital side, from the system side, Medicare for all would be catastrophic delivery system. Forget about the sort of the insurance companies. I, I sort of discount them completely even though they provide value. They will adjust. Um, and, and as I talked about Medicare for All, the insurance companies are today providing individual coverage are going to, if, if it were to happen, I don't think it's possible, but if it were to happen, they'd adjust and become the provider. The, what, what is really hard to understand, especially to our listeners you know, overseas, is that the United States of America does not have a, a government delivery system outside of of the military or the Veterans Administration. So there, there is no chain of hospitals that are owned by the U.S. government. There is no chain of hospitals that are owned by the state of Florida. Um, so it's not like you can go build infrastructure. In many countries, the, the single payer of the country owns the hospitals, owns the doctors, owns the insurance companies. Um, so we don't have the mechanism to do that, even Medicaid. There may be a lot of not-for-profit hospitals. As a matter of fact, overwhelmingly, the majority of hospitals are not-for-profit. And there are literally, you know, tens of thousands of not-for-profit clinics, but they're not the government clinics. It's rare. There are some cases where the government, the county government, may own a hospital. Um, we live in a community where that happens, but it's incredibly rare. It's incredibly rural. Um, most of the time, the hospitals are independent taxi districts. They're independent. In Fort Lauderdale, which is just south of us, you have for-profit hospitals, you have non-profit hospitals, and you have two hospital districts that basically split the county in half, and they're supported by by tax by tax revenues. Uh, so there's no there's no simple solution to the healthcare delivery, which then makes the Medicare for all such a big problem. Would you say that those issues that you've mentioned and talking about the, the, the numbers of people that are on a Medicare or government plan, Medicare, Medicaid, versus those that are not, that um, we have a cost structure problem as well as a health care infrastructure problem? Is that, is that, well, a, is that a fair Fair question. Uh, I, I think are, I think yes and, mo, and, and, and no. It's bigger. So let, let's go back and look at it. The United States health care um, is 18% of GDP, about $3.7 trillion. When you take Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the Veterans Administration, you take uh, 
government employees from the federal government, state government, local government, when you take all of that together, that's about half of healthcare. That's about 50% of all the healthcare dollars in the United States. Um, and yet, it doesn't have 50% of the profits for the industry. The profits for the industry um, is actually provided much more from the employer, private employer side, or even public employer, but on the private side of the market versus the government side. So that 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 is very so the reality is that half of the United States effectively has government health care as far as payer side. Again, we talked about they don't we don't have a distribution. There's no way in today's society that we can go out there and create a distribution um, that would be government owned. I don't see the government buying. Um, there's plus or minus five thousand hospitals in the United States. Over 4,000 are not-for-profits. And those not-for-profits are fiercely independent. Um, they're funded by sometimes taxing districts, sometimes or many times by um, endowments uh, that donors build. So it is not uncommon to find a hospital that's in the nonprofit world. Certainly in the markets that I'm familiar with, they could have a $100, 200000000 million endowment. I know at least one that has a billion-dollar endowment. So they are designed to be self-sufficient. It's not like the federal government's going to say, we're going to buy your hospital. That, that, the, the, the federal government, I say, doesn't do that. And I can tell you, if they did, they'd probably run it very poorly. So it's not an, the infrastructure cannot be changed. It's not like the, the, the basic you know, U.S. highway system that was built back in the 50s and 60s. You cannot build today in the United States a separate... Uh, independent government-owned healthcare delivery system. It's just not possible. So can you, there's a final question for you, can you justify the cost of healthcare in the United States in comparison to other well-developed countries? Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, healthcare costs per capita and total as a percent of GDP that we pay in the United States that other people in other nations don't pay. Uh, is, there a, is there an argument that can be made uh, because that argument's being used in favor of Medicare for all? Sure, I mean, we, we pay more per capita than any other country uh, in the world for healthcare. I think number two is probably Switzerland, which is you know a tiny relative country to the United States. Um, we also have among the best health care in the world. Um, one of the challenges you have with government-sponsored health care, and it's another subject, is waiting times. Uh, we have been the beneficiary in the United States of people coming from Canada because they don't want to wait six or nine months to get an MRI, and they can cross the border into Michigan and, and get one today. Um, the problems that, are have, that, are, that, that the developed world is having with the aging population we talked about aging population before. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. As a matter of fact, it's a problem that Japan has way more worse than the United States. It's a problem that Europe, let's call it old Europe or Western Europe, has worse than the United States. So you are now seeing for the first time in 75 years or 70 years maybe, um, tremendous stress in the healthcare delivery in the Scandinavian countries, uh, in France, in Germany, in England because of the baby boomers now retiring. And, and uh, they will manage it because they built those systems um, going back 60, 75 years. 
um, but it's becoming a bigger problem. So the gap may actually narrow between what we spend in GDP and other countries are. But guaranteed that we're going to continue to grow. It is very easy to see healthcare in our lifetime double, literally double on a real-time basis. Um, it won't double a percent of the GDP, but it will double on a real cash basis. But I wrote recently in a, in a blog that um, healthcare at 18% of GDP, it is completely conceivable that it'll be 25% in our lifetime. So think about it. One out of every $4 will be in healthcare. My argument is, and, and I'm looking at it from my rose-colored healthcare glasses, is that in a weird way, um, we're going to be extending life extendancy. We're going to be extending life uh, spans. We've had a little bit of a blurb here in the last couple, three years. Part of it seems to be um, the opioid epidemic and a few other things that, that hopefully have been handled or be handled better. But the reality is we're going to probably extend life um, as we have for over 100 years. Um, so it'll be a better opportunity. And and it will be better for society. Um, when I talk to students at the college and the university, I, I tell them, if you don't know what you want to do, explore healthcare because you're going to have the best job security that you could possibly have. Well, that's great. That's very good. That's uh, very informative. Uh, I guess the takeaway for us is uh, stay healthy. Well, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> have good habits, right? right. So uh, hopefully we've answered some of the questions uh, about uh, Medicare for all. We didn't get into the politics or even the financing, and there's a lot of issues with financing. My concern, my fear, my alarm is that the healthcare delivery system will be dramatically impacted to the negative, um, even if we figure out how to pay for it, because there's not enough money to do it. And and a lot of people are going to get poor quality healthcare, certainly if you're one of those unions or big corporate employers. And I think that people like my mother, my, grand, my mother who is Medicare will have less quality because there will be many more people trying to get through the door. So we want to thank, uh, thank you, Carl, for those questions. We want to thank all of our listeners and hope you will uh, connect with us in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.